we're warning people not to straighten their eyelashes with a 400 degree iron, then maybe we should be talking about the seven foot, six, seven foot off the ground bed that is an open and obvious hazard. Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and with me is my stellar co-host, Lester Tate. Hey, Lester. Stellar, stellar, like uh, like uh, burning out across the sky here. Yes. We're we're watching this uh, Netflix show called For All Mankind about space. uh The premise is, what if the Russians had beat us to the moon? And it takes oh. off of that. So we're everything I do is related to space right now because I'm really into this show. So I thought stellar. I'll have to I'll have to I'll have to check that it's, out. It's pretty good. If you I like, like space, uh, I like uh, space shows. I watched The Expanse, uh, like all six episodes, a uh, six year six uh, series of episodes there. So uh, it was uh, it was really good. So uh, it, it, today is a great day to be in your car with the air conditioning up, but listening to our podcast if it's the day we recorded it because it's <laughs> just hot as hell outside and there's nothing uh, productive to do there. <laughs> so we're going to provide you with what to do. A fantastic podcast today, an episode we're really excited to have our guests. Um, we have two amazing moms with us today. Uh, who really have put their grief into action, and I want to introduce you to them. The first mom is Mary Ellen Jacobs, whose son, Clark Jacobs, suffered a serious brain injury at Georgia Tech in a fraternity house when he fell out of his bunk bed. As a result of this, Mary Ellen formed the organization Rail Against the Danger, or RAD, whose purpose is to make dorm rooms safer by having bed rails installed on lofted beds. Mary Ellen Jacobs is also the co-founder of the College Safety Coalition Coalition that we're going to talk about. She's also on staff at Shepherd Center, where her son uh, was rehabilitated after his accident. A devoted mom of two and a resident of Georgia for 31 years, her passion is to drive for lasting change in institutional bed design and college campus safety data collection. The second mom is Nanette Hausman, whose son, Corey, died from what began as a pedestrian accident on his college campus, which occurred 15 days into his freshman year. He was skateboarding to a friend's dorm at dinnertime on a sloping and irregular multi-use pathway. He sustained a TBI traumatic brain injury after a fall was taken to the local community health center where he was able to talk upon arrival, but passed away seven hours after his arrival. As a result of Corey's death, Nanette created college911.net, whose purpose is to minimize college students' deaths and accidents. Nanette is driven to help colleges and injury prevention professionals acquire the data and resources needed to minimize the risk of injury and loss of life. 
She is equally committed to providing families tools in the form of a medical emergency checklist to use when preparing for the college drop-off. Her goal is to minimize the number of families living with the devastating loss hers does every single day. She joins Mary Ellen in leading the College Safety Coalition. Mary Ellen and Nanette, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robin and Lester. Welcome, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. We're in Connecticut. I live in Connecticut, and it's not as hot as in Georgia. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, that's good. It is. They don't, definitely they don't call it hot Atlanta for nothing. Yeah, Boy, that's for sure. I've yeah. lived here 30 years, and this is one of the hottest summers I remember for sure. You know, the thing the thing is that there are a lot of places that are hotter than Atlanta, but there's no place that's really hotter than Atlanta. The temperature may be higher, but when you combine it with the humidity, it's just awful. So, yeah, well, we're we're heading into college season. So another big group of freshman students will be going to college campuses. So I think it's a really good time to talk to Mary Ellen and Nanette um, about what they're doing. So. You've heard a little bit about their stories. Mary Ellen, do you want to talk a little bit more about your entry into this world about college safety and Jacob? I'll I'll say this. I I first came in touch with Mary Ellen because I blogged about. Clark, because he graduated from Georgia Tech after this horrific accident, uh, rehabilitation at Shepherds. I mean, when I saw that, I'm like, I've got to write about this guy because that is, that is impressive. Yeah, for me, it's impressive. And, and Lester's a Georgia Tech grad too. I don't know if you knew that. Um, I did not I, know that. I think Georgia, Georgia Tech's one of the hardest schools to graduate from without any injury. And, and Clark really just overcame that. And, uh, what fortitude he had. So I just thought it was an amazing story. And that's why I blogged about it and just really got interested in what you're doing with, with rail against uh, the danger. That is, that is amazing. And I'm going to, I'm going to jump in for a minute though, just to say that, you know, it's a true tech graduate when instead of saying they graduated, they say, I got out. It's like, (laughs) like we, like we got out of the penitentiary or, uh, you know, we got out of the hospital or or whatever else, you know, it's the way tech graduates always say, what year did you get out? So, uh, maybe you can tell us what year did Clark get out and and how did that happen? That's, that's right, Lester. I remember that at graduation. Um, that's, I, I'd never heard that before. I couldn't believe I hadn't after all that time of him going there, but yeah, Clark, um, from the time he was a little kid, we kind of figured uh, he comes from a long line of engineers. My father was an aeronautical engineer for 30 years for uh, McDonnell Douglas Aircraft back in the day and post-World uh, War II. And my, uh, my, mo- my father-in-law was a mechanical engineer, and my husband was also an engineer, for uh, aeronautical engineer, for about 12 years and then went into computer science. But um, yeah, Clark, from the time he was little, would build block towers, you know, as a little guy, and he would know why they fell. And we were like, okay, he's, he's an engineer too. So we kind of always knew he'd probably go to tech. Um, we just figured with living in Georgia and that being such a great school. But yeah, when post-injury, um, obviously when he's laying there in a vegetative state for 10 weeks, we didn't know if he would be doing anything of the sort. And um, 
for him to get back there and to to do this was uh, was his. That's all he ever wanted. When his when Shepherd Center asked him his goals, when his therapists and doctors, what's your goal? It was always get back to tech, get back to tech, get back to school, get back to driving. And of course, he had to learn literally everything all over again. It was, I mean, swallowing. Um, moving moving his extremities learning how to walk learning learning how to talk again how to feed himself how to go to the bathroom everything any little thing that you could possibly think of excuse me with existing day to day he had to learn relearn and it sounds like a brain mama but I'll go ahead and say it anyway I can tell you that kid complained about five times over a two-year period of grueling therapy but um, he just maybe that's it. Maybe he was just destined to be a, a Georgia Tech guy. I don't know. But he was just um, he never said no. And I think in, when you asked Clark, the happiest day in his life was August 10th, 2016. And that's the day that he walked back on a campus under his own power with no cane, no walker or anything. He's got a little bit of a limp, but we'll take it. And um, he's uh, he's my he's my hero. He truly is in every sense of the word. Uh, I, I admire him so much. And he really helped fuel this. This um, obviously his accident fueled the story and fueled the uh, the desire to um, begin rail against the danger. Um, I literally started from a a thought in the bleak hours that followed his accident. How often does this happen? Is this a thing? I mean bunk beds and loft beds are everywhere. Does this happen a lot? And that was really how it started. And I just kind of started uh, rolling this idea around in my head that this shouldn't happen to anybody else. There's an easy way to prevent this. And I'll be candid that the first time I saw his, he had just slept for a whole year in a residence hall as a freshman at Tech, a first year, I should say. They don't even say the freshman, sophomore. It's the first year at Tech. He was in a dormitory for the first year and in a top bunk, and we never gave any thought to it at all. And then when he was in the paternity house, we went to move him in and I saw the, these, all these elevated, every single bed in that house, brand new paternity house, like a year and a half old, all of them were probably seven feet off the ground. Um, my husband, my son is six foot five and he could walk under the bed because they had like the bed and then all the living stuff, closet, desk, drawers, everything was underneath the bed. And so um, first thing I said was, being the crazy mom that I am, I'm like, should we put something on that? That's really high. And he said, Oh, mom, you know, and my sister, my, his sister and my husband both said, he's not going to fall out of his bed. And I'm like, okay, okay. So the helicopter mom backed off and said, okay, okay. I'm being silly. He, he, he won't fall out of his bed. And darn if three months later, he didn't fall out of his bed. So, um, Anyway, so that that's how it started. And I literally started with just a grassroots. I made a, I'm a marketing uh, graphic designer by heart. Uh, that's when, what I did my whole life uh, after graduation from college. And um, I started with a flyer that didn't even have a picture of Clark on it because I didn't know if he would want me to do that. And it just said, is your kid safe? And I put some statistics that I had found on the internet. I still have it somewhere, but um, that's how it started. was just uh, I putting would it love- out there. I'd love to see that flyer, but I'm interested in when you started digging, what did you find out that this was more common than you thought? Oh, absolutely. That that was the thing, Robin, I think that really got my attention was it wasn't people when they hear Clark's story say, wow, what a freak accident. It, it's not. It's not a freak accident. There's uh, 71,000 ER visits a year from Lofton Bunk Beds and 
a large portion of that is there's a pretty significant spike in the 18 to 21 years. Well, I think we all know that's the college years. And uh, it's, uh, but what I couldn't find was specifics. I could just find this, these ER numbers. And I thought, well, gosh, that's just ER numbers. Now we're not even talking to kids that just fall out and break an arm or break a leg or maybe get a concussion and check out of school for a semester and come back. And um, I could never find anything about those ER numbers, but I thought, well, if those are real, which they are, they're backed up by, you know, the CDC and everything else. I thought if that's real, then where are all these people? Why don't we hear it? Why don't we know more? And the other uh, kind of, what do you call it? Uh, when you just kind of know, so you, I would put something out on Facebook or I'd have a post about rad and someone, everybody, Oh, my friend's daughter fell out of her bed and, you know, broke her leg. Oh, my friend, my niece fell out and actually had a spinal injury. I mean, just went on and on and on. So people were always telling me what I already knew, but again, where is it? Interesting. Um, and uh, did you ever consider consider legal action? Did you did you look at that and say, you know, that's not right? We need to file a lawsuit. Well, you know, I think in the beginning um, we were so blindsided by this uh, traumatic shift in our family and just every, everything was about just would my first in the first days, literally whether he was going to live or die. Um, the surgeon that operated on his brain when he was bleeding told us that, you know, he might not even live. So I guess in the beginning, as I was forming those ideas about, you know, does this happen? Um, and we kind of, we gave a, we called the university and let them know that it had happened. And we were, we kind of got the idea right away that the house that my son was injured in was, was, on campus, but a private house and a private institution in itself, which is the Fraternity House Corporation. So the more we thought about it, um, I had seen way too many cases and things on television and in the newspaper where sovereign immunity reigns. And I thought we could go for years trying to track this down and make someone take be accountable to it. And in the meantime, how many more kids are falling out of beds? So we just decided to channel our energies into making it more, making people know, mm -hmm. understand what was going on. So what are your, uh, your organization, what are your principal goals? You want, you, you want to, uh, you know, tell us exactly what you're trying to get people to know and to do. So my principal goal in the beginning, Lester, was to start with Georgia Tech because that's where the accident happened. So I started um, trying to meet with some people there, um, talking to the housing department, talking to the dean of students. And a friend of mine who's a legislator actually got me hooked up with the University System of Georgia. And in November, I think my son's, my son's accident was in January of 2015. So in November of 2015 was my very first meeting with the University System of Georgia. I met with some people from the Board of Regents, including the, the Chancellor. And we talked about, I kind of, I think I was in a room about six or seven people around the table with me. And I told them Clark's story, what had happened. And of course, they were just appalled that this had happened. And I said, is there a consistent rail policy in this system? Do all the colleges have their own? Or is there, does anything require a safety rail? Are safety rails available at all the schools? And and they all kind of looked at each other and they didn't really know the answer to that. And so they promised me at that very first meeting that they would send a, a, 
uh, survey out to all their 26 schools, find out A, who had bunk and loft beds, B, who was offering safety reels and who wasn't, and whether they were available or not. So um, we got the surveys back and, and realized that there were quite a few schools that, that were offering elevated beds that did not have them uh, any rails to offer their students. So they decided to make it where the housing departments had to have rails to offer. Now this mama, that's not good enough. I wanted the damn thing on the bed where it belongs because you, you, you're not gonna have some, tell me that some 18 year old is gonna walk into school and say, gosh, maybe I need a safety rail for that bed. They're not going to see that. They're, they're concerned about which fraternity has the party that night, you know, what their, their room looks like, what, what flag they've got hanging on the wall, you know, they're, they're, what major they're going to do. They're not thinking about safety. They're hoping that, and we parents are maybe hoping the college has already thought of all those safety precautions. So it took me uh, several years, but I kind of kept after and kept after and Finally, I got the USG to agree to put safety rails on the bed at check-in so that every kid who walks into that room, the safety rail is on the bed. And it's um, in their legal housing contract that if they take the safety rail off the bed, they assume the responsibility for it. They assume the liability. That's in all Georgia State public? Yes, public colleges. Yeah, public colleges. Not, not private. No, and, but I mean... Yeah. It's a start, though, but to Lester's point, Lester, so that's one. Now I've got about 49 right. more I need to. <laughs> wow, that's, that's an incredible. One down, 49 to go. That's so. right, one down, 49 to go. Incre I think that's, that's an incredible accomplishment. Um, you. you know, it's it, it, it also, I would say, um, that and, uh, uh, you know, Clark having that same love for Georgia Tech, I do, you know, that that's a place where, kids are out building cars, you know, they have their rec parade, you know, if you can, if, if you're not building a safe uh, bunk bed at Georgia tech, it, it's certainly not happening any place else, you know, right. I thought on that. Yeah. yeah. And you know what else, Lester, we ended up sponsoring Clark and I ended up sponsoring rad sponsored uh, two capstone teams uh, in 2017, spring of 2017 to come up with kind of a better mousetrap for a, for a safety rail, maybe something that, actually was functional and held held a laptop and a bottle of water and a nightlight, maybe, you know, uh, to where they can get up and down a rail more safe or the uh, ladder more safely by having a light on the bottom of it. So we, we had a couple teams come up with some ideas to um, to do that. And one of them right. came up with a very good plan. And I'm still trying to get the manufacturers to latch onto that because if they can make the bed safe and functional, we've solved the problem. It'll be used more, that's for sure. Absolutely. Nanette, let's turn to you and your story um, about your son, uh, Corey. And I've told our audience about what happened to Corey and his tragic death. Um, tell us about how that motivated you, how you turned your grief into action. Well, thank you. Thank you, Robin. Um, and you did cover the story. Now that I, I um, listened to um, Marianne a little bit, I have a, just a little bit more uh, to add to what gave the push for college911.net. And <clears throat> I'm not going to cry, I promise. Um, it, he died 15 days into his freshman year. And when we went to uh, pick up his belongings from his dorm, um, there was a very wonderful dean of students that we worked with um, 
and she told us where to go, what to do, who to call, how to withdraw from classes. And I said to her, I said, has this happened before? I said, it's like you have a well-oiled machine in place for us to be able to, you know, remove Corey, um, take him out of classes. And she shared with us that his was the third student death in that semester uh, since the first 15 Awful. days. And that's kind of when my wheels started churning about how often does this happen? So at the end of Corey's freshman year, I went back to his college to try to find out how many total students died that year. Um, and, and nobody at the university um, seemed to be able to share that information with me. And then I went to their Department of Higher Education, which is where when a student passes away, um, that's where the administration reports um, a loss of a student. And I, I come to find out that they don't track student death. They don't have that as a finite number at the colleges. They treated him like a transfer or a withdrawal to reduce the cohort of his class so the graduation statistics are not damaged. So that really, I was wondering if it is that unique to where my, my son went to school in that state and I brought it home to Connecticut and found out it's the same way here mm. in the state of Connecticut. So they're not required to keep um, any kind of data regarding student death that is publicly available. I can't say they may not have it some internal document. So that's what kind of, um, um, I was a finance and accounting person before I became it marketing and now I'm a safety advocate. Um, it, it was like, give me the number, give me the data to understand how often something like this happens. So that added to a little bit of the momentum about why I felt it was necessary to try to um, get data, not only for ourselves, but also for the university themselves regarding serious physical accidents and deaths so that parents can make informed decisions and the universities themselves can have all aspects of safety um, as a priority. Um, back to Corey for just a second. Um, what Robin didn't cover, which um, I wanna share is what a special child Corey was. Um, he uh, was the spark in our family. He was the youngest of three boys. And like most children going off to college, he was at the, 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 the peak of his life, happiest person on earth, um, just living life. And that's what makes this situation so hard is because when I talk to other parents that have lost their children, in particular freshmen that have just left home, it's that same feeling like they, they were just like a jet taking off and everything was coming together for them. And then something, a tragic accident happens and they're gone. So... <clears throat> It's just such a, such a vulnerable time in their lives to be having them go off to a whole new place, new surroundings, new environment, classes, social life, and to have them suddenly um, gone is really, really hard on the family as well as the student um, and their friends. So <clears throat> that was that the lack of numbers and the lack of data is what got me on the quest to pursue um, legislative change, um, which we got a bill passed in um, Connecticut in a single session, bipartisan, um, uncontested um, new law in Connecticut that was passed last year so that the, in Connecticut, the colleges 
do keep track of um, serious physical injuries and deaths. And we're trying to push for federal regulation now through a federal bill called the Corey Safety Act, um, which was just introduced into the House so that all colleges can start capturing this information about uh, loss of life and serious physical um, injury. <clears throat> and when you, when you, with, with uh, this legislation that is trying to get colleges, I guess, to report this more, you know, report more uniformly and, and uh, provide uh, uh, statistics and information that would be helpful to the public. But have you have you seen data that shows that like some some places are just like some cities are more dangerous than others, that certain colleges uh, or universities are more dangerous or have more hazards uh, than others? I've seen certain articles that are written about um, like pedestrian areas uh, around college campuses in urban areas. There's a lot more accidents. Um, I you know, you hear in the news, you hear articles about. Um, I think there was one college where there was a tremendous number of suicides a couple of years ago, but we're, you kind of hear about it in the media, but I haven't seen anything that has any kind of evidence-based data regarding, you know, which um, college communities are safer than others. Um, and, and I haven't, I have not found it. Um, I'm not saying it's not there, but I have not been able to find anything. Um, and that's, and it's, the purpose of this is also to help educate and inform parents, but it's also to help the universities. We had one of our um, AVPs of uh, public safety at, at UConn actually came forward and wrote supporting testimony um, about um, the bill that we were trying to pass. So they said that the universities can prioritize all aspects of um, all aspects of safety and not to get too far into the weeds, but right now, because of um, an act that was um, put together by the Clary family. It's called the Jeannie Clary Act. Right now, the universities um, are required to report crime and fire-related data only. So, so if there's crimes on campus or around campus or in this, this specific geographic area, they are required to put it on their website. It's called a campus security report, and then they feed it into the Department of Education. But what's, what has ended up happening is, is that this crime and fire is how college community safety is kind of defined. Like if you look up any article about college community safety, and it will be about crime and fire. And we found in digging um, that actually accidents um, are the leading cause of college student death, according to surveys far more than crime and far more than for um, fire. So we're really, there's a big void in, in information about the leading cause of college student debt. And that's what this legislation through the state and then hopefully through the federal government, we will, we will be able to kind of expand the whole definition of safety and, and achieve a new standard. <clears throat> With uh, colleges counting a, a student's death as simply as if they, voluntarily left college, I, I mean, I could say that's mis, misleading at best and, and maybe even fraudulent at worst. I mean, what, how's a, a parent supposed to know uh, whether the campus they're sending their kid to is safe without that information? Well, I, I don't think, because I don't think that the, they're not required to do it. The federal government has determined 
that they have to, because of a law of another family, they have to report on fire and crime statistics. And they, you know, think about how much, you know, uh, the federal government gives universities. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have to change the law, because I really do think, you know, some of the people that I met at my son's college felt terrible about what happened. And they were sad and they were mourning with us. I, I, I just I think if we change the law, um, then there will be a lot of people that will be happy because they'll be able to identify. They'll be able to modify and be able to invest in all aspects of safety. We actually worked with um, uh, someone from the Department of Education when we formulated the the uh, the federal bill. Um, the person that's in charge of clear reporting. And they said, this makes complete sense. This is a plug and play. Um, they can go out and do audits um, at the beginning of the school year, walk around campus, see what looks dangerous, uh, trim hedges, fix sidewalks, all sorts of things. But by having the reporting requirement, it, it helps make sure that it's a priority and then they can make the investment to make sure the campuses are safer. I really don't think they... I, I don't look, the more I've investigated, I don't think the universities intentionally withhold the information. I just think they've built a system around what the federal requirements are. And they get fined if they don't, if they don't adhere to the federal requirements. The reason the whole Clary Center and other organizations like the Clary Center are in existence is because colleges can go to them and say, how are we making sure that we are living up to the regulations dictated by the federal government? <clears throat> So maybe it's naive, but I, I think I don't think there was necessarily intentional um, not including that. And I, I honestly, Robin, when you lose a child, I'm very untypical. I turned into a private investigator. And I think that's what Mary Ellen and I have in common mm-hmm. um, is that um, I just turned into how could this have happened? And I need to understand the whole system from all different angles because it was um, so blindsided and so painful, not only for me, but for our whole family. So I, I don't think I'm typical in that, that respect. Um, it, sound, it sounds like Nanette, that you like Mary Ellen, um, instead of saying, Hey, I want to sue somebody. You just said, I'm going to throw my grief into action and investigating and getting things changed so that other families don't have to go through this. Yeah. I mean, I, I must say I, I wasn't, I, that wasn't my first reaction was to, um, to, to go and sue, but I did have some dear friends that after the, the, the dust settled slightly, I did call and um, I, I did call a couple of attorneys out in the state where Corey was going to college. And um, what I kind of, beyond the wear and tear of the family, because I was told that it would take four to five years in order to be able to even get um, a trial, um, the countersuit possibility. Um, he fell on campus and, but he died at the hospital and he wasn't taken to a trauma one center. And that's an important part of the bill is, is that um, I know Clark went to a trauma one center. Corey went to the local health facility and we weren't contacted until he was in a coma. We were 2000 miles away and all the decisions about his care had already been made and implemented. Um, I know now after my investigation and research, and that's on my medical uh, emergency checklist. It's part of the College 911 initiative is find out where the closest trauma one center is um, to your, col- um, your college um, and make sure that you're aware of that information and do everything you can 
to get your child to the best possible care as quickly as possible. Um, so the countersuit possibility, um, also the difficulty of finding a well-established attorney. We talked to a couple people and they said, you could find somebody to take the case, but there's sovereign immunity that's working against you. And it'll be hard to find somebody that wants to go up against a big public university within their state. Um, the other thing is um, at the time, a wrongful death suit, the maximum recovery was $436,000 and much less for a medical malpractice suit of which 40% would go to the attorney. And if we would be responsible for the defense expenses, if we were to lose for some reason. So um, yes, Robin, we decided to make, make this, I, I just, I, and I, I, I may have had to have a gag order also, um, which I know that there's been some suits um, in other universities and the, the families are not allowed to talk about what happened. And it just didn't make sense to me for, for a multitude of reasons. Um, and so, um, we've, uh, we've, I don't want to say use Corey's story. That's not the right word, but we've, um, displayed Corey's so story in a way that hopefully it can help others and fix a broken system. So one of the things that, uh, uh, Robin and I, you know, as lawyers, uh, look at, uh, for uh, a lot of these things is, you know, is an, is an accident, uh, preventable. Was it preventable? Was there something that could have been done? Uh, and, and I know, uh, you know, for example, Mary Ellen, you know, like the guardrail would have clearly been a prevention toward the, uh, the incident which your family suffered. Have you, have you all, and I'll just throw it, throw this out there and, uh, don't be afraid to talk over one another because Robin and I do it all the time. It's, it's <laughs> difficult sometimes with zoom, but, uh, have, have any of you seen statistics about, uh, how many of these accidents that occur on the college campuses actually are preventable as opposed to some, which, you know, there's some freak thing that happens, uh, that, uh, that causes it, uh, you know, also, um, you know, as I, uh, as I move further and further away from my, uh, college career, I realized, uh, every year that I'm less invincible than I was before, uh, when I went off to college, I did think I was invincible, and I think uh, that's not particularly uncommon. But uh, to the preventative aspect of that, have, have y'all been able to see any trends or statistics in that? Well, you know, I will say working for a brain injury and spinal injury hospital, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things that can be prevented. And, you know, Lynette and I talk about this all the time. One of my favorite sayings is, and it's it's nothing really profound, but you don't know what you don't know. And I think that there's like, I didn't know that bunk beds and loft beds were dangerous. I, I mean, I, I guess in my, of course, I know they're off the ground, you know, so yeah, they can potentially be dangerous. But um, to your point, Lester, I remember looking at that stupid safety rail and thinking $40 is what that safety rail costs. And my son's medical bills were well over a million. And I thought, Okay, so you put the you put the the $40 safety rail on the bed. You tell the kid and the parents why the safety rail is there. You know, it's here for your protection. And that's pretty much all you can do. Like I know I know that some people are still going to say I'm not a baby, I don't need it. I'm going to take it off. It has nothing to do with being a baby or an adult. We're all asleep. We all sleep. We all check out for about 8 hours or 10 hours a night and uh, anything can happen. You roll the wrong way and you're out of that bed. So for me it's like that one in particular, but also on college campuses, 
all manner of transportation, scooters, bikes, everything, helmets are not common. Uh, again, I don't think, I think it's the, the invincibility. Their age group is, um, that's not going to happen to me. I'm, I'm 18 and I'm invincible. I really do think they believe that. And one of my videos I do, it's actually at my website, um, the Real Against the Danger website. I actually interviewed, we interviewed a doctor from Shepherd and talked about the, the, the realistic aspect of 18 year olds do not recognize danger. They do not have the prefrontal cortex development at 18 to recognize danger. So the schools very often, in fact, our school said, well, we feel like when an 18 year old walks into a room and sees a, a bed that they can ascertain for themselves whether that bed is dangerous or not. And I said, I'm going to turn that around on you and say, when I'm a parent and I come onto my college, that college campus and I see security guards and I see fire doors and I see sprinklers and I see blue light stations, I feel like you've probably already taken care of this, a lot of the safety aspects of it. But here are these beds. And I had a conversation with Robin. I said, how do these, these uh, rooms even get insured when you know that a six foot or higher even lower than that, really, it's dangerous to sleep off the floor. It just is. And you're going to fall onto a concrete covered with a little thin layer of linoleum floor. And that is exactly what happened to my son. He cracked the back of his skull so badly that the ER doctor thought that he had been hit in the head with a crowbar. Good Lord. You know, I, I say, I say, uh, Who's in a better position to know whether the bed in a college dormitory is safe? Is it the 18-year-old or is it the college that supplied the room? A lot of times the colleges require freshmen to live in a dorm. They supplied all the furniture, and yet they want to blame the 18-year-old. I, I, that that's just, un, I can't understand that one, honestly. Me back either, to, ridiculous. Back to Lester's question for a second about preventable. Um, I know in our circumstance, um, after after Corey um, fell, um, I had offered to go in and, and pay to have diamond cutting put in the sidewalk where he fell because um, it, it, was, it was communicated to me by his, his college that they knew it wasn't a great area. They had a lot of um, sidewalks coming together in like a main artery and then it gradually sloped down. I have this all in writing. And, and so I said, well, let me pay to put some diamond cutting in so that kids understand when they're picking up speed or how can I make it safer for someone else? And I actually got a letter saying that they, they were going to look into some improvements in the, in the area because they knew it was a known high risk area and it needed improvement. So I went away for a year. And when I went back, I come to find out that nothing, nothing has been done structurally to improve the area. And that continues now. So to me, Getting getting the data regarding how often in an area something happens, all of a sudden that could have, quote, been an accident, in my mind, is no longer an accident if it happens over and over and over again in the same area. So I, I really appreciate your point, um, Lester, because so many people after Corey passed away, they said, well, it was just an accident. Well, if, you know, if, if it happens over and over again and there's something that can be done about it, it is preventable. And that's. That's the importance of getting around and recording, tracking how often things actually happen. <clears throat> Let's talk a little bit about the College Safety Coalition. We know Mary Ellen started RAD, Rail Against the Danger, and Nanette, you have college911.net. 
And then I believe the two of you met uh, in the College Safety Coalition. Can you talk a little bit about what it is and, and uh, what its goals are? Um, well, yeah, Mary Ellen and I um, actually met because I had approached uh, I mentioned before the Clary Center, which is that organization that is the, um, I guess I'd call them the gurus of college safety. And that, that was back probably after about a year after Corey passed away. And I was going to them to say, would you support me in trying to have accidents um, and deaths be part of this safety report that the colleges come up with? And again, they went back and they, they, at this point, they only do crime and fire. But I said, are there any other uh, parents that you've met that are on the injury prevention track? And and then she gave me rail against the danger. And I reached out to Mary Ellen. And while we um, are we have different individual objectives, when you when you look at it at 30,000 feet, it's all about preventing injuries and saving lives. Um, And so then about a year after that, um, I was fortunate enough to get an article published um, by uh, today.com, uh, a parenting digital platform that got picked up by Apple News. And um, I w- a few people reached out to me, other, other parents, very similar to Mary Ellen and I, that had their own initiatives um, that had lost children in college communities that were determined to help other families um, uh, get more prepared than we were. Um, part of the college 911.net initiative is, is the legislative piece, but it's also we as parents were completely blindsided by what happened. We weren't prepared for medical emergencies. We had everything else covered. We thought we had everything else covered. So um, I, I took the emergency medical. What do you, what do, you do when you're 2,000 miles away from home and your child has an emergency? Mary Ellen is, is, you know, was, was the, the, um, the lofted beds, the railings. Um, and we met other people um, who's, um, we have one person on our team, um, Angie, whose daughter fell down a flight of stairs her first week and her friends thought she was fine and just put her to bed and she passed away. So we were able to bubble, things bubbled up, other parents that had safety initiatives or we, were, we would do a search because we felt that there was safety in numbers um, rather than isolated parents trying to make a change individually, we would come together as a group. <clears throat> Absolutely. And she, she, when she called me, um, we, it's kind of, kind of strange. Like she said, above and beyond our differences, we just, we just were like instant, instantly bonded and just talked for, I don't know, I don't know that first day we talked for like two hours or <laughs> something to that. It was a long time. And um, yeah, like the Nets said, over the over the year or the the next year or so, COVID and everything going on, and and my amazing dynamic partner here gets a bill passed in the middle of deadly COVID, uh, un un uh, contested, bipartisan, unanimous. I'm like, go girl, you know, it was awesome. And so we we like she said, we kept thinking, is there a way to put these all these different initiatives together and make it a group? Not just one broken-hearted mom, not just one, you know, helicopter mom like me. Let's get all of us together and say that we're through all these disparate uh, forces. We have a lot in common, and that being, and that just said safety in numbers. Yeah, the numbers. That if that's what really brings us all together. And it's ne- it's necessary when you're trying to make change that's going to impact institutions and going to politicians. I mean, we're we we have to 
it kind of gives us the group think and the group energy that gives us yeah. a little bit more stamina when we're trying to um, be listened to. Um, I, I was never involved in politics. I'm embarrassed to say how um, uninformed I was about our political uh, system. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, I've learned so much through this process. Um, but you really need to have um, more than just an, uh, an isolated person when you're trying to make change. And then we learn from each other. We share resources. We, um, one of the members, which is um, Catherine Bannistall, she's taking all of our information and they're having a big um, event in the uh, state of New York. And she's going to talk about the uh, coalition and give out materials. So we're learning as we're going. <clears throat> Is the coalition's goal also to um, make the numbers of accidents and deaths on campuses uh, more widely known and available? Is that the focus of the coalition? I, I would say the overall focus is to make it better for other families, the overall goal, because each if you look on each of the different websites of the initiative, you'll find tools and recommendations for when you drop your, your child off and they're living um, one of the initiatives is called Peace Outside of Campus, and and their initiative was is about things to look for, make sure that the apartment doors have locks on them, you know, create um, a community within your off-campus community to make sure you take care of each other. I think that um, I have probably been the loudest voice about starting to collect data and using the data to help parents and to help the universities and actually injury prevention. And I think every, I think everybody is very supportive of that. Um, and now that we're, we're getting so close and we have a federal bill, we're, we're coming together. Um, but I, I would say the initial um, objective that brought us all together is making it better for someone else. And we each have different approaches on how we do that. Yeah, education, right? Again, it's the what you don't what you don't know, and uh, we you, you you certainly don't want people to. I've people come out of the woodwork this time of year that like on my own initiative they're looking for, they're looking for safety rails. They ask if they have them, they say no, we don't have them. So they they reject me. Do you know where how how I can get one? And I in turn empower them and say, look, go to the housing department, go to the dean of students and say, I want the safety rail that was made for this bed because there is one. I can guarantee you the manufacturers are required if they sell in the, in the um, other side of things in the private sector, they have to sell the bed with the rail. It's required by law by the CPSC. Well, it's a standard that the CPSC set, which un unfortunately institutional beds don't have. So I try to empower them to go back and, and, demand it. You know, I'm bold enough. I'm old and bold and um, I'll <laughs> demand it. Give it to me. I'm, I, I paid for this. I'm paying taxes. You're, you're charging me a hell of a lot of money for this room yeah. and for this bed. You need like to your point, Robin, you need to make this, this safe. This is on you. My kid didn't drag their bed to school. They didn't say, bring that bed on in here and we'll just not use a safety rail. No, you are supplying a bed and you are charging me for it. I, I think that empowerment of other parents who have not been through what you've been through is very important because I would think some parents would be intimidated and wouldn't know and wouldn't feel like it was their place. But for right. you to say, no, go do it. They'll have it. Uh, well, on, and on that note, I, I, I'm having parents and some of my students that work as volunteers um, reach out to the universities and ask before they go, where will I be taken if 911 is called on my behalf? And you'd be surprised at how 
uncomp that that information is not readily available to parents and students. Um, so that's part part of what the federal law, um, if we're successful, will do is to have the universities supply that information on their websites so that you as a parent can go on there and find out where the closest trauma one center is. People just don't think about it. No. Um, and a lot of times the larger universities, the flagship universities are out in these remote areas, rural areas, because they have the space. And, um, and so, yeah, empowering parents and students to ask questions is really important. Thank you. All, both of you, you know, and, um, um, Robin and I have talked about this before, you know, when you when you're making a case, we're often making one in court. But, you know, there's really the, the two sides frequently come down to being what's the big picture and what the details are. And uh, uh, people are a lot more moved by a compelling story like the two of you have than they are by statistics. Uh, institutions, however, are very much moved by statistics. Because if they have to keep those statistics, then we know that they know and uh, and uh, they know that we're going to find out. And so it it really does, uh, I think, instill uh, uh, a new level of awareness uh, institutionally to have those statistics, but to motivate people uh, to pass this legislation or to uh, take steps or to put uh, you know, put a rail on your bed is much more motivated by the example uh, of what you all have had to live through. Absolutely. And, and I think that's right, Lester. It's like you put yourself, there's that personal part because we all are that we're all those parents who were sending the, your kid off to school and you're, you're holding on and letting go. And I think that's part of the dynamic of this age when they're they're 18 and they're going off to college and the college is saying they're adults and we're like, yeah, but they're really not adults. I mean, they're close, but they're not there yet. And so it's kind of like hold on, but also, you know, giving them a little bit of leeway here and there and letting them live their life. And so I think we feel almost guilty, like we're being that, again, that helicopter parent. But again, we have to, to Nanette's point, be the having these tools in place and having the data pointing back to, you know, how many, th that's why when I met Nadette, I said, oh my God, are you going to tell me your dad is going to tell me how many dang bunk bed accidents are there, there are across the country? Yes. <laughs> so it's like when you have the data that points back to what these things all talk about, that, that helps. But it, it is, it's, it's, I do think it's the dynamic of that age group. It's that pulling away. They're supposed to pull away. They're supposed to fly on their own. They're supposed to leave and go. And we're supposed to be sort of happy about it, which, you know, some of us are, some of us aren't, but um, it is, it's that, that I, it's, I hate to say toxic. There's nothing toxic about it, but it's that time of their lives when it's, tr it's tricky. It's, it's very tricky. And, and Lester and Robin, um, when I was working in corporate America, the OSHA coordinator um, for my company, um, one of my many responsibilities. And I remember if someone was to slip or fall on a set of stairs um, or any kind of injury in a, in a work environment, you had to report it. You had to put it on a document and it had to be submitted and it had to be reviewed. I don't think they necessarily have those um, types of reporting systems in um, uh, universities because they have, they have sovereign immunity. They have a certain, at least the public universities, they have 
um, because they supply a service that no one else can, there are certain rules that don't necessarily apply to them. So I think that having collecting data and and having it there and and be able to reflect and prioritize where they invest in safety is important. Um, so. Uh, Well, I, th I think also, you know, in looking at the tragedies that both of you all suffered were uh, things that uh, that your kid was doing at home. You know, it wasn't it wasn't they were in the chemistry lab and the chemistry lab blew up or, you know, the dorm caught on fire or whatever else. And uh, that's the kind of thing that, uh, you know, when you entrust your kid to university, you kind of expect them to take over a little bit of that, uh, you, you know, and put no, no pun intended, but some guardrails, you know, maybe mm -hmm. on, the, on the kids to uh, let them know what's, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't okay to put your finger in the light socket at home and it's not okay to put your finger in the light socket here, you know, either. And it's, it's a lot of the, the newness of the university, um, when someone is has moved away from home all of you know their environment is new their friends are new all sorts of new pressures and you know they may not know how long it takes to get across campus to their chemistry class it's it's the novelty of it and the unfamiliarity of it that i think contributes to um you know what we hear about through the media which is our only source really is the number of these accidents that happen towards the beginning of the school year and especially for freshmen. So it's, you know, this is their first year of college. They're, you know, they moved away. Some of them have moved away for, for the first time and maybe they're having their first beer or two, like we all did. I mean, so many of the things that you read about in the news um, about these tragic incidents, they quickly, they quickly tie it to the behavior of the student and what was the student doing at the time, um, which I'm sure contributes to it. But if it happens over and over and over again to different students and different families, then there should be this awareness that these things happen and what can we do to help um, to make them as safe and secure as possible. Um, and so it's, that's why the, um, uh, the information, the evidence-based information would be really important to not only understand where and how it happens, but when it happens. What what is your you, you know, you have our wonderful audience who listen and subscribe to seeing court. What is your ask of our audience? What would you have our audience and our listeners do um, Mary, to facilitate this? Mary Ellen, do you want to go first or do you want me to? You go first, girl. <laughs> I would say there would be two things I would have people do. It would be go on the college 911.net website and download and look at the medical emergency checklist because that's something that parents and families can do now. And it's not ne necessarily just college students. It would be any person moving away from home for the first time living independently. There's a lot of really good information in there about things to think about if your child is hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from home. So it's the college emergency checklist. And then the other piece is the, uh, the legislation that we're trying to um, push through the House of Representatives. Um, I think the representatives in your area are Johnson and McBath to write to them and have them support and co-sponsor. It's called the Corey Safety Act 2022. Um, 
and that's so that's available in the Library of Con Congress. And then eventually we're going to we're, we're pushing to get a Senate bill established, which we don't currently have yet. Um, but that would be reaching out to Ossoff and Warnock, which are the state senators of Georgia, um, to push for these two types of regulation would be on my wish list today. OK, that sounds great. That's great advice. Mary Ellen. I uh, say absolutely. Her um, her her wish list for the uh, legislation is is the, is the same. as me. So I hate to say ditto, but ditto. Um, but I would say for the for my initiative and for the rails, like I kind of referred to it earlier, ask questions, go in there um, and, you know, trust that. I, I wrote an article about this once. I said, trust that feeling, you know, the feeling I wish I would have trusted. Uh, when you look at something that doesn't look right, guess what? It's probably not right. You know, you, the 18 year old's telling you he's fine. Yeah, he's 18. You're not. Um, we're the adults. And um, it's OK to hold on a little bit. And, and kind of ask questions. And if you don't get the right answer, then you go up the, a little higher up the food chain and, and try to look for a different answer. And I think, um, of course, you know, in my, my elevated uh, opinion of this whole wave of people asking for safety rails, I, that's, I guess what I hope for is I wanna see this groundswell. I wanna see parents, not just me out here yelling my head off all the time. I wanna see parents asking for these things. And, and you know, getting back to the, the high price of college, college is expensive. And if we are entrusting our, to, when Lester was talking about the entrusting our, our students to, to an institution, and truly you do, you drive away and you have just left your loved one who's been in your house for a long time somewhere else. And, and that's no small thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I do think there's, um, there's ways we can be educated um, education's key. Like even just slapping a safety rail up on the bed, I'm still trying to get the University System of Georgia to put a big, bright orange label on the loft that says, "Here's why you have a safety rail." Because this many people are injured every year, and I have a this big, like you know, two inch by six inch label on my hair straightener that tells me not to straighten my eyelashes with it. <laughs> so I feel like if we're warning people not to straighten their eyelashes with a 400 degree iron, then maybe we should be talking about the seven foot, six, seven foot off the ground bed that is an open and obvious hazard. Good point. Good point. Well, I'll tell you, Lester and I both, um, we have in our careers represented a lot of parents who are grieving because they've lost children. Um, it's, it's one of the most dev devastating times in someone's life and Lester and I both have to meet with moms and dads who come to us for help in, in the worst time of their life. What I see is my clients who channel their grief into action the way Mary Ellen and, and Nanette, the way you two have, they just do better. They have a purpose in life and they can, you know, move on, maybe may not be the right word, but somehow make their lives rich again um in the wake of really horrible grief and so i hats off to both of you for doing this and we really want to promote your actions because it's just it's just fantastic what you're doing thank Absolutely. you so much yeah now um thank you you're you're very welcome we ask every guest at the end of an episode how do you define justice have y'all given that any thought Mary Ellen's shaking her head. So. Yeah, yeah. Mary I Ellen, was, you, you want to go first with that? How do you define justice? 
I think in the, in the case, um, you know, again, it would probably be my, my own personal definition in, in the realm and the lens of what happened to my family and to my son. I would say that um, I want accountability, that I think that it's time for, you know, and I say this all the time in my, my uh, Facebook and social media uh post, I say it's time for the universities to stand up and be accountable. And I don't mean that in a, a finger pointing way. I mean that and just it's just the right thing to do. It's um, being accountable. My parents raised me well. And I, um, I wasn't always a Southern girl. I was a Midwestern girl when I was young and raised by two greatest generation parents. And they didn't cotton to uh, someone not taking responsibility for their actions. And so I feel like if you are going to be a a, a responsible university and try to do the right thing and keep your students safe. And you're going to say, that's one thing you're trying to do, then do all you can do everything you can to make them safe. Wonderful. And Nanette, I how, will, do you, uh, how do you I, define justice? I will ride on her coattails and I'll, my, my goal is to help the universities prioritize all aspects of safety. Um, maybe I'm in, you know, uh, uh, in fantasy land, but I really know that there's a lot of people at the universities um, that will embrace this um, this regulation and and help make the campus as safe as possible. I actually asked my son, um, who also went to my son's same same college, um, about justice, and and he helped me with this. He said, "So since nothing will bring Corey back, our justice will be to see change put in place in order to prevent something similar from happening." So that's what I would say. If I, my justice is making a positive change to help families, universities, injury prevention, it gives it gives um, a little bit more purpose to Corey's um, short life. Uh, that's wonderful. I, I totally agree. Um, well, it's just been a wonderful time talking with you uh, both. Thank you so much for being on. And I want to share again to make sure our listeners know where to read about your um, your efforts, first Mary Ellen Jacobs, her um, her campaign is rad. Rail against the danger, and her website is railagainstthedanger.org, and they you can go to that website and find out a lot of information. Nanette's is college911.net, um, which is also very very helpful, and then there the the coalition website that they formed together is collegesafetycoalition.net. And I looked at that the other day and uh, amazing, amazing moms like you to um, putting their grief into action. Uh, and uh, it's very, very interesting. And I encourage all of our listeners to go check out those websites and um, get involved and, and, uh, and help, you know, do your part to help make our campuses safe. So Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you all for, for letting us have this platform to, to put our ideas and solutions out there. We really, really appreciate we need, we need We need Thank people you. that help give us a voice, and it means a lot. Thank, Thank you. you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you, Lester. Today, we are fortunate to have uh, with us today, uh, Steve Welch. Uh, Mr. Welch has been practicing law since 1994 and specializes in workers' compensation, bodily injury, and civil litigation. 
Uh, he recently got a $1.4 million verdict for a veteran truck driver uh, in the Superior Court of Lawrence County, uh, previously served as the uh, writing editor of the Mercer Law Review, has been co-chair of the Georgia Workers' Compensation uh, Institute, Law Institute in 2002, uh, which is the State Board of Workers' Compensation's annual education uh, seminar as a panelist and a speaker in 2008 and as an author and a speaker in 1999. I hope that's very prestigious, Steve, because I've been invited to be one of the speakers this year. Uh, and the fact that you've done it makes me feel even more honored to have been asked. Um, uh, he was also a host speaker at the 2015 State Board of Workers' Compensation Annual Regional Seminar. Uh, he's currently an adjunct professor at Mercer University Law School, where he teaches the workers' compensation class. You can learn more about Steve and his law firm at Bazell, Welch, and Hill at HTTPS www.bwhlegal.com. Steve, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Lester. Glad to be here with you and Robin and Fred. Hey, Steve, we're glad to have you. Um, we have just been talking with Mary Ellen Jacobs, uh, who's, who started Rail Against the Danger due to the very traumatic injury of her son, Clark, and also uh, another uh, motivated mom, Nanette Hausman, whose son, Corey, died on a college campus. And it brought to mind the fact that I've, I first connected with Mary Ellen Jacobs about her son's injury um, when I blogged about a case that you handled, Steve, um, Valdosta State University v. Davis. Um, so right. we want to talk to you about that. Um, that case involved a student's injury, your client, uh, when she fell out of a lofted bed. Um, so first, though, I'd like the listeners to hear a little bit about you and your practice. Can you tell us a little bit about um, yeah. your law practice and what you do? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I have a firm here in Macon. It's a medium size for Macon. We have seven seven attorneys, and coincidentally, we're all Mercer Law grads here. Uh, we have two associates so um, to, to help us out, but I've been practicing for 28 years, and um, right out of school, started the defense side and realized pretty early that wasn't my calling and um, switched over about a year into my practice. And I've been doing plaintiff's work and claimant's work ever since. I find it to be um, much more rewarding and, and you feel like you can do some good in this world. Uh, Lester and I feel the exact same way. <laughs> That's what Absolutely. we've been, been doing most of our careers also. Um, yeah. So this is an interesting case we wanted to talk to you about, Valdosta State University v. Davis. Um, and just to give our listeners an idea, again, your client was a student and she fell from a lofted bed and was was severely injured. Um, sure. You won in the trial court on a motion for summary judgment, but then it went up to the Georgia Court of Appeals and the Georgia Court of Appeals reversed. And then I believe the Supreme Court denied certiorari. Is that correct? That, that's right. Yeah, this is probably one of the most crushing and disappointing outcomes in, in my 28 years of, of practice really, really was hard to swallow. Um, yeah. Hard, hard to understand as you read the opinion, hard to understand how it ended up the way it did. Can yeah. You, can you give us a, I just kind of talked about that. She's a, she's your client was a student who fell out of a bed, which is exactly what happened to Clark 
Jacobs, but can you right. give us a little more background about that? Absolutely. So my client was Davis, Elizabeth Davis. Uh, she was a freshman at Valdosta State. It was her first time um, stepping foot on the campus, as a matter of fact. Um, but the, the, the facts that are significant, Robin, to me, are that the university had 100% complete control over everything, okay? They assigned her room. They assigned her roommate. They purchased the furniture. They configured the room with the beds already in a lofted position. Um, they made the students sign a housing agreement that said they could not alter the furniture. They couldn't remove furniture out of, out of there. And the rooms were extremely small as well. And so um, the reason the beds are up in the air is to use the floor space underneath for furniture or refrigerators or whatever you want. Um, but they configured these rooms with these raised beds, knowing that the students were going to sleep in them, right? Um, my client actually called the maintenance department and asked for guardrails, bed rails, safety rails, those are all interchangeable, um, and was told that the university does not offer guardrails or bed rails. Um, there was an option to lower the bed slightly, but the lowest it could be was still over three feet off the ground. Um, I got in touch with the manufacturer of the beds that the University System of Georgia purchases the furniture from. And on every single bed, there's a warning. If you have these beds over 30 inches, which is about two and a half feet, you must use guardrails and bed rails. So despite the warnings from the manufacturers, uh, they required these students to sleep in lofted beds. Um, I deposed the safety director. Every single room on campus was configured the same way. So even if she had said, I don't feel comfortable sleeping up in the air, um, can I get a room that's on the ground or can I get bed rails? The answer was no. So she did exactly what was expected of her and encouraged of her by the university, which is to sleep in the bed they provided for her. And this decision just to me, you know, shifts the burden from the owner of the property who has an obligation to keep the premises safe, switches that obligation to an 18 year old girl to make safe a room that they knowingly set up in an unsafe manner. They admitted they knew it was unsafe. Unbelievable. And, and, and so, it sounds like they contractually obligated her to keep it in an unsafe uh, uh, condition as well. No doubt. No doubt. She, you know, she had the wherewithal to call and even ask for, for the guardrails. Um, and they said, we don't we don't have them. Was so, she required to live on campus in the dorm the first that was, year? That was a, a freshman requirement. So she, she couldn't she couldn't leave. She had to stay there. Right. And, and that's what I argued um, to the Court of Appeals is that, you know, there's no argument that a bed raised up in the air is an open and obvious condition or it's not, you know, it, it, it's it's visible. Right. But the question is, did she have a reasonable alternative? And the answer in, under this case is no, she didn't. Unless she just decided, well, I, I'm going to withdraw from from school. Right. 
Um, they, they made her bed and she had to lay in it. Exactly. That's a good one. So, I, I noticed in the opinion that you presented evidence of this happening before other similar incidents. They how, were did away, you, how did you find out about those? Through discovery, because, you know, they they represented the university system uh, of Georgia. And so they had access to the other schools records and things like that. And other schools also had bed rails available. It, it was half and half. Some schools had them available and some didn't um, at, at that time. Um, I'm hoping that at the present time, they all have them available. But yeah. Well, but I, think, yeah. I think Mary Ellen Jacobs is really helping that to change, at least in state universities. Um, do you remember how many other incidents like that of a, of a student falling out of bed that you had? You, you know, Robin, I, I didn't go back and look at that's the. So, oh, that's okay. I was just curious if you yeah. remembered that. It, it was a handful, you know. But um, it was enough to show they had, they, you know, and you're talking about a superior knowledge issue. Who had superior knowledge? Well, they had knowledge that all these other students had fallen out of bed, just like your client had. She, had didn't, know, she didn't know about that. They had knowledge of that. They had knowledge that the manufacturer required the, the, the bed rails. They, they admitted all that. And so, you know, what, what I mean, that's essentially the facts. Um, I will also mention one other thing that, that I argued that the Court of Appeals didn't even address, which is <clears throat> she had to sign this housing agreement that required deposit and fees and payments for the housing side of things. And so... I actually argued that this was akin to a landlord tenant situation where the necessity rule, if it was, you know, that yeah, kind of exactly that excuses a plaintiff who encounters a known visible hazard. Yeah. Uh, court of Appeals didn't even ad address that. So so what the Court of Appeals did. Is. Essentially, once they labeled the hazardous condition open and obvious. They stopped the inquiry and essentially, at least this panel, Judge Dillard wrote this, you know, the law now is an open, obvious condition bars recovery um, without any further analysis of the plaintiff's exercise of ordinary care in light of this open and obvious hazard. And, um, you know, they talk about equal knowledge and, and this, that and the other, but and so they applied strict Robinson v. Kroger premises liability analysis, but Robinson v. Kroger has a second prong is even if the plaintiff has equal knowledge that you then have to look and see if they exercised ordinary care under the circumstances um, with regard to that hazard. And in my case, you know, that that's essentially assumption of the risk, right? If a plaintiff voluntarily encounters mm -hmm. a hazard, but the law with assumption of the risk is that um, it has to be a free choice, right? Without coercion of circumstances. Um, in every single case that I cited to them, there was a reasonable alternative for the plaintiff. And so when they made this choice to encounter the hazard, they should be precluded because they had a reasonable option. Here, um, I argue that she did not have a reasonable option and she had to encounter this hazard that the school mm -hmm that the school created for her. Mm -hmm. um, she, she wasn't free to avoid it in any yeah. way. She didn't have it as an option. And 
So the Court of Appeals just never went beyond. It's open and obvious. Therefore, the inquiry ends. And that was it. Yeah. I, I, when I was reading the opinion, I wrote captive in her room. Uh, she had nowhere else. She was captive to the risk that they set up for her. I've argued that before when I represented a client uh, that was leasing a, a, a mobile trailer and the steps were bad. But she had to use them because there was no way else to get out of her trailer. Same sort of thing. Your student had to use this bed without that was dangerous. Yeah, no question. And so, to not even analyze her conduct in light of, you know, OK, we all agree it's open and obvious. Everybody understands the bed's in the air and there's a risk of falling. But, you know, what, what other option did she have? Um, and you, well, I, noticed, and, I noticed you said that uh, you you analogized it to a landlord tenant situation. And, and, and I thought, I don't think that's a very good analogy. I think that's an actuality because they were renting her a room, which is what a landlord tenant situation is. Absolutely. She paid to use the room for that semester. Yeah. Uh, so um, I'll tell you I, the other thing that got to me about this opinion is in the last pa paragraph, there are some facts listed. Uh, to me, a, attempting to blame your your client for her own demise, which I, I really resent. Um, but the thing I wrote down is, isn't that a jury question? Right. No I, question. <laughs> uh, he, well, Judge Dillard focused on three facts that clearly showed he was trying to rule against Ms. Davis. Um, he, he focused on the fact that she did ask one time for her bed to be lowered. Again, I argued it didn't matter because it was still above the 30 inch threshold. But he said she never followed up on that request. He focused on the fact that she had had a couple beers the night before and didn't even acknowledge that when she went to the hospital the next morning, they did a full toxicology report and she was clean, no alcohol, no drugs, no nothing. He didn't, but he's focused on the fact she had had a couple beers the night before. And then he actually, you know, she had to drop out for a couple semesters, but when she went back to school, um, she purchased her own bed rails. And he made a point of saying that she did that. Oh, that's almost like a subsequent remedial measure to prove yeah. that she was negligent on the front end for not purchasing her own. But her conduct was just the same as every other student at Valdosta State. You know, it was um, not unreasonable as a matter of law in light of the circumstances. Um, yeah. you, you know, and and I solicited the help of um, Charlie Cork to help on the petition for cert. And we really focused on um, the conflict of law because Georgia jurisprudence, you could go find 10 cases that once it's labeled an open and obvious hazard, the inquiry stops. And you can find 10 more cases that then once it is open and obvious, we still look at the plaintiff's conduct in light of that open and obvious hazard. And it comes down on both sides. And we did some really in-depth research and 45 states have abolished this open and obvious danger rule where that's the end of the inquiry. Um, and they've adopted the second restatement of torts, which actually says when there's an open and obvious hazard, you know, should the owner anticipate 
the harm despite the condition's obviousness. And there are situations where you, you should anticipate the harm, you know, if there's the distraction theory or necessity rule or mm-hmm. the freedom of choice. And, you know, um, and so, it, it, you know, we are in the strict minority, Georgia, it, in applying this, this draconian, you know, once it's open and obvious, it's over. But really, that's really not the set law because there are cases that do go farther. And so I, I, I can only guess why. Judge Dillard didn't go further in this case um, when you've got the Board of Regents and the university system as a party. I don't you know, there's got to be some indirect pressure there, I would think. But, you know, um, I don't know. It was just it was a crushing, crushing decision. And, uh, you know, know, I noted that the very first sentence of the of the because you actually went to trial on this case, got a verdict, correct? No, we we actually won on summary judgment at the trial level, and then okay. they. So you they, won at the trial court, but you never right. went to. Uh, oh, I'm, I'm we we won motion at the trial level, right? The uh, other, you know, the other thing about open and obvious, I haven't studied that in a while, but I believe it was originally a products liability um, theory theory to be yeah. used in products case, strict liability cases, and then some case got our appellate courts off using it on a premises liability and then they they just use it but i i've i don't even think it sh- should be used for premises liability and and really robin the um the obviousness of the hazard really just means there's no duty to warn that's all that means and, and that comes back to what you said with product liability right it, it, yeah it, that makes sense sure it, in the analysis, right? Yeah, like, like, don't stick your hand inside of a lawnmower or something, right? Or, or you know, don't walk into this telephone pole. You know, yeah. you know, it just means there's no duty to warn. But the plaintiff's knowledge of that hazard, because it's open and obvious, doesn't end the discussion, um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they've assumed the risk or been contributory yeah. negligent or 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 what have you. And and again, just when there's the key to me was that there was no reasonable alternative. And, um, but judge Dillard just never, never talked about the necessity rule, never talked about her, you know, did she exercise ordinary care under the circumstances? And it was just, once that obvious label got stamped on a lofted bed, she lost. Uh, one, one of the other things that interested me about it is that there was no sovereign immunity defense asserted, apparently. Yeah. And they never I'm very surprised. They never raised it even in their initial motion. They never argued it at the trial level. Um, and I don't know if. You know, we go to the whole was it ministerial or discretionary and all of that kind of stuff, and maybe because. I don't know. Some schools did it one way and the, some did it another way. I, was it was it brought under the State Tort Claims Act? It was. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. they would have waived sovereign immunity up to a million dollars. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And, you okay. know, I think this was a million dollar case if, if there ever was one. Um, yeah. Yeah. She. Uh, she she her roommate. This is, it's funny how I got this case. Her roommate, who she was assigned by the uh, the school, she didn't even know her. 
her roommate's mother and father were high school friends of mine. And her roommate's mother is a nurse. And when she fell and hit her head, she was just going to crawl back in bed that morning. And her roommate called her mother, my friend, the nurse. And she said, oh, I think you need to go to the hospital if you hit your head. And sure enough, they were going to life flight her to Tallahassee. And then the, the neurologist in Valdosta said, no, I'll be there in two minutes. We need to do an emergency craniotomy. So, I mean, this was a very serious injury. Yeah. Had, uh, so it was a traumatic brain injury and she ended up having to have brain, emergency brain surgery. She did. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, um, you know, my final thought about it is superior knowledge, whatever. I also think there's something about the university having there's just total unequal power and knowledge between the university and an 18 year old kid that that I don't see how that's ever equal knowledge. Honestly, I, 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 I don't see that ever qualifying as equal knowledge, but. Yeah. Um, you know, now we have this opinion. And so we've just talked with Mary Ellen Jacobs and Nanette Hausman about safety on campus. And they're all about trying to get data of accidents that occur on, on campuses to try to, you know, inform parents, make it safer that way. What what do you think about your case and what effects it may have on that and, and safety on campus? Yeah, I mean, you know, even though we lost, I think, um I think at least at Valdosta State, they no longer configure yeah. the with, with the beds up in the air. Um, I think if a student chooses to raise their bed, the guardrails are now available for them. So, it, you know, I, I feel horrible for Elizabeth Davis that she didn't prevail, but maybe maybe some good came of it. And certainly Mary Ellen's efforts. And by the way, she reached out to me all during dependency of this case, and she was um, a big support person for my client who was going through this because of what Mary Ellen had experienced. And so yeah. I know their Facebook posts and emails and they talked. Um, that, that was, that that's was great. very nice. That's very nice. What's one of the last things they said is tell other parents uh, about this because you, you're not alone. You don't have to go through this alone. Right. Um, but I do think that even though the obviously the result of of the Davis case was not what you had hoped for, I, I do believe you're bringing it and arguing it and presenting the evidence has changed the ways that Valdosta State operates. And I know that's going to lead to to safer rooms, safer, right. safer campuses. So, yeah, you know, I hate I hate that you lost the case. But but in the process, Steve, you may have saved some lives. Yeah, let's hope so. And, let's and look at it that way. And, and my client. Bless her heart. She feels the exact same way. She, she's a really high character person. And so she's made some of those same comments. You know, maybe this yeah. has helped the next person person after that. So, um, yeah. And she's doing well, by the way. She's made a pretty good recovery. Good. So, Glad yeah. to hear that. Yep. Yeah. Glad you to hear know, that. Uh, Judge James Hill, who was a judge in the Northern District of Georgia and then later on the the Fifth Circuit, and then when it split the Eleventh Circuit, he had a saying that was, "If a lawyer's telling a story, it's about a case he won." And uh, <laughs> you know, uh, all of us have uh, uh, stories about cases we've won, but sometimes the more compelling ones, and the ones that I think take greater courage to tell, too, are the ones that we've lost. Yeah. And uh, so I, I just can't uh, compliment you enough for bringing this case, for fighting that battle. Um, 
and uh, you know, weighing in on behalf of this kid. And well, uh, it's your your argument uh, even still today. Uh, and look, you know, I, 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 Judge Dillard is, a, you know, I think a great judge. He's been a guest on our podcast, you know, before. Uh, I don't say anything about judges that their colleagues don't say about them in dissent, you know, sometimes. And if you read, if you want to know the nastiest things that some, one lawyer says about another, go read the dissents on the United States Supreme Court. So, you know, sometimes we feel that that people got things wrong. And uh, when we do, uh, you know, we, we we say that, even though our opinion uh, may not may not carry the weight uh, as others. So uh, I, I totally understand that frustration. Uh, and I think, too, you know, in fairness to to a lot of judges, you know, nobody knows a case like the lawyer that's preparing in that case and presenting right. the case. And, uh, and and sometimes there's just so much information there that uh, you you want to open your head and pour it into the judge's head, you know, to make sure they understand, you know, all of these points. And uh, it's, it's just impossible to do. And it's it's one of the most incredibly frustrating things as a trial lawyer, you know, I think that we all have to do. Well, it's funny. I, I guarantee you, if we had gotten to see the inside of a courtroom, a jury would have really um, sided with with our side in this case. Um, you're talking about the, the, the trial court during the summary judgment motion. You know, it was a motion day, so the courtroom was very full. And um, we made our arguments and, and I walked out of the courtroom and I had about 10 people surround me and say, oh, my gosh, this is the most interesting case I've ever heard of. I can't believe they set up those beds like that and made that poor girl sleep. And I mean, I just know we were going to we were going to hit them if if we ever got to a jury. But, yeah. uh, you know, it, 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 in addition to the, the safety on the campuses from, from a purely legal scholar standpoint, Hopefully, this also got their attention that there is a conflict in our Georgia jurisprudence with this open and obvious rule that sometimes the inquiry stops and sometimes it doesn't. And there's no right reason of why one panel of judges does it one way and one does it another. And, um, you know, maybe this will get somebody's attention and we can we can join the other 45 states and have, you know, um, abolish it as a as a hard, fast rule that you can't recover if it's an open and obvious hazard. So, yep. yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Steve, thank you for, for your time. And, and, uh, we really appreciate it. And, uh, I know our listeners have learned a lot about this and, um, next time we a- ask you to be a guest, it'll be about a, a victory. <laughs> Sounds good. I'll be back. <laughs> thanks. So All much. right. Thanks. Lester. It's that time where we talk about a fun little law-related event that's happened that we want to shed some light on. What do you have for us today? Well, as you know, Robin, I sometimes follow sort of these political cases, not really for a political reason, but sort of to make a point that the courts aren't supposed to be political. Now, the one I have today has to do with the uh, Steve Bannon verdict, and I'm looking at uh, an article uh, in Bloomberg after he was convicted. And it says, Bannon verdict shows no defense, sometimes isn't the best defense. Uh, and <laughs> as you may know, uh, Steve Bannon's uh, lawyers chose not to call defense witnesses to submit any evidence or to let the jury hear from 
their client. He was charged with uh, contempt of Congress for defying a couple of subpoenas, not producing documents. Uh, he made a lot of uh, public promises to go medieval and whatnot. But instead, what they did in this trial, as this uh, Bloomberg article outlines, is uh, they call no witnesses, they presented no evidence, and then the, the, the defense lawyer gets up in the end uh, and gives what they call the kitchen sink closing argument, where he questions everything. And as a as a criminal defense lawyer uh, myself, sometimes I know that's the reasonable doubt defense. You know, are you sure this was the committee chairman's signature on the subpoena? That wasn't really <laughs> true to us. And the interesting thing to me, though, is that it absolutely did not work. And, you know, we live in an age where, and you and I have frequently seen people go into court where uh, they don't really have a defense, but they think they can kind of BS their way through it, I think, a little bit. And our jury system as a whole, not that it doesn't make mistakes, I don't think we have any uh, American uh, institution that doesn't make mistakes from time to time, but uh, the jury system and the collaboration that's required to reach uh, a unanimous verdict like you have to in a federal criminal case, uh, it, it, it really, it, it can't be BS. And I think this is a, a, a really, uh, really great example of that. One thing I will add is that, because um, I, I don't want to totally uh, diss them, I think they had a potential defense that uh, bad advice from his lawyer could be used as a defense. The judge ruled that out and they want to take that up on appeal. So they kind of went through the trial first so they can go up and, and sort of make that other argument. So uh, uh, I, it's probably not as stupid as it sounds, but uh, it is pretty stupid to think you can just BS your way uh, with a jury in an American courtroom. And that's my article for today. Yeah. And, you know, Steve Bannon will probably now that he got convicted, accuse his lawyers of ineffective assistance or something. Um, yeah, I'm sure that there's more coming on that. Well, my, my news related article is the fact that today hundreds of recent law school graduates are sitting for the Georgia State Bar exam today and tomorrow, including my daughter, daughter Alex. Uh, who is a recent graduate graduate of UGA Law School, and she has been studying her butt off, as many of her friends have also all summer. And today's the day, and she was so nervous and just but worked so hard all summer, getting ready for it. Um, so we're very happy that the day has finally come. Uh, we wish her luck and sending prayers to her that that she'll do do well and pass. Um, so many people have told her, look. You just have to pass. You don't have to get an A, just pass. And I was uh, interestingly saw an article today, since so many people are sitting for the bar, by a lawyer named Alex Sue. And Alex Sue is on all kinds of um, social media, even TikTok. He's a lawyer who, he's a lawyer. Um, he is currently the head of community development at Ironclad, a leading legal technology company. Um, but he's clerked for a judge and he worked at a big, big law firm, Sullivan and Cromwell. Uh, now he does this, but he's on all the social media sites. And he made a confession today in his article saying that when he first took the bar, 
um, he failed. And he, he writes a very elegant piece about it and how he thought he was on law review and he really thought this would be a piece of cake, didn't really study, and he failed. Uh, but then he was humiliated by it, br brushed off the dirt off his jersey, got up and, and studied and took it again and passed. And he says to all the students out there taking the bar today, he says, what I am saying is this. Failing the bar exam was not ca not the catastrophe that it felt like at the time. It was just a bump in the road. And in the long run, failing mattered a lot less than I expected. How hard I worked, how kind I was to other people, and how seriously I took my craft, all of those things mattered more, far more than the results of a single test. So as you all head into the bar exam this week, that's my message to you. You are more than just your resume. And if you take your preparation seriously, you will be fine, no matter what ends up happening. Because at the end of the day, no single test can make or break you. You got this. And so that's also my message to all the folks who've studied their butts off all summer for today and tomorrow. And to my daughter, Alex, you've done the preparation you're totally prepared. Yes, it's a hard two days. We've been through it, but you'll do fine. You've got this. I totally agree. And uh, I read an article this week that said still in the Commonwealth of Virginia, if you take the Virginia bar exam, you have to wear a uh, dress that's appropriate for court, which would be a suit and tie, you know, for gentlemen. And I, I, I don't talk about women's apparel, so I'm not going into that. <laughs> But um, I'm, I'm thinking there will be uh, a much more uh, casual day uh, for the Georgia bar here. And I wish Alex the absolute right. best of luck. And I'm, I'm sure she will do outstanding on it. All right. Thank you. We hope so. I think she'll do great. Well, we want to um, thank our sponsor, the Georgia Civil Justice System. That's uh, it for us today. Um, you may learn more about the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation at fairplay.org. We also want to thank our producers, Taras Raz Misher, and we have a new guy on board who's going to help us, Philip Hoover, and we thank them because uh, Raz starts law school next week. So way to go, Raz! Congratulations yeah. to you, you, Raz. Yeah, thank you. and um, pray for me. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, Raz, you 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 may not need rails on your bed for law school because you just don't get that much sleep. You know, <laughs> here. So, uh, I told him to get his get his reading glasses ready. That's right. Get them clean. Um, so, Raz, we are sending. Uh, we'll see you again soon, hopefully. But good luck and and Godspeed uh, in law school. We'll be we'll be watching out for for your um success because i know you're going to be great and, and i you. think i think after he gets uh gets about halfway through we need to have raz as the guest yeah and talk to cool. him about law school you know yeah. about what it's like i'm sure i have some uh some balding spots in my head by then <laughs> <laughs> i already told him he should pitch an episode of see you in court to his professors that yeah. they could watch that instead of one of their boring lectures one day. I agree with that. <laughs> um, also, I want to just remind our listeners that you can for find out more about Lester Tate, the stellar Lester Tate, at his website, akintate.com. And you can find out about me, Robin Fraser-Clark, at gatriallawyers.net. 
And you can also learn more about our podcast at cuincourt.squarespace.com. We hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends and family. So, Lester, you have anything else? No, I guess uh, until next time, time, we'll see you in court. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. The producer of this podcast is Raz Misher. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Fraser clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.